when you picture a sex buyer, a John, as some people call them, what exactly do you see? I'll tell you what I saw before I met one in person. I saw a dirty guy. Someone with greasy hair, stubble on his face, dirt under his fingernails. Someone sleazy, slimy, grimy, and who looked like he might get pleasure out of hurting women. And this image might be the image I have in my head from my own personal experiences. And maybe that's what you see too. But coming to Seattle forced me to come face to face with reality. In most parts of the country, buyers rarely face any consequence. But I heard that Seattle was taking kind of a revolutionary approach to dealing with the sex trade. Instead of arresting everyone involved, they are targeting the buyers. And they're letting the people who sell sex go free. What happens next is the buyers they arrest have to take a 10-week class. And the point of this class is to re-educate men, to teach them about sexism and violence against women. Other cities in the country have these so-called John's classes, too. But Seattle's is by far the most intense buyer's class in the U.S. And I'm going to check it out firsthand. Hi. Good to see you. The class is taught by this guy. His name is Peter Qualitin. So we're just uh, wrapping up with the final question to them. Uh-huh. And then I'm going to invite you all up and uh, invite you to just introduce yourselves a little. Okay. And then they can leave if they want. Have you said anything to them at all yet? Yeah. You have? Yeah. Did eyebrows raise up or anything? No, I think that, you know, of course they're a little bit nervous, but we'll see. Hopefully a couple of people will stay. The class is in this community center up on a hill with a beautiful view of the Seattle skyline. There isn't really much around. You can see an abandoned house out front, and I also notice this office building that's totally empty, but the only occupied space is for a massage parlor. The sun is setting over the city, and Peter comes to tell us that it's time to go upstairs. This is when I start to get nervous. I'm about to be confronted with a room full of people who might have been involved in some really serious crimes, maybe even trying to have sex with minors. And I start nervously rambling to my team. Do you see them as, like, people who sexually assaulted women, who have taken advantage of women? Do you see them as pedophiles? Like, what what are we supposed to see them as? Like, actually, though. Peter goes inside to the class to let them know I'm here. And I'm officially trembling. I can feel my stomach in knots. And I become that 12-year-old girl again, the one in the elevator with the creepy guy pushing up against me. I'm nervous to go in because I want these guys to talk to me, but I also don't want to be there at all. I do the only thing that I can do in these situations. I start praying under my breath. Kevin, my videographer, is filming me getting ready to go into this room, and he tells me that he can hear me. I can hear it, right? Oh, that's right. You just said something different. Sorry. I totally forgot. What's happening? My heart's racing, and we're waiting. Um, we're waiting to see if we can get into the class, and I don't... I mean, I know I'm nervous, but I'm really nervous. I don't think I've ever been this nervous before. Hey, Noor. Yeah? Come on in. 
So this is uh, Noor, and this is Hi, this awesome group of SSE participants hey. that we've you? got this round. Noor, good to meet you. Um, my, my name is Noor Tagore. We came in from DC, actually, and I'm working on a series. Um, we're traveling across the country about trafficking in the US. Are any of you comfortable being on camera during this or no? I, what's that? Okay. I'm not surprised to hear that guy immediately respond with, I'm leaving. I mean, most of the class doesn't want to be interviewed on tape by a reporter. All right, so if you want to leave, you can take off and we'll see you next week at six o'clock. And if you want to hang out, we can hang out for a while longer. Have a good week. Good luck. Almost every student in the class jolts out of the room except for one. And it turns out it's the one guy who started off with, I'm leaving. And he surprises me. He says he's going to stay and talk. Do you feel like talking or you want to head, head out? I feel like I should do something because it is kind of a community service thing. I think I like, have some stuff to make up for, so I changed my mind. I'm not going to bail unless... I appreciate that. He only agreed to talk to us if we didn't use his name and we altered his voice. So can you just tell me why you're here today? So say a cop that was posing as a prostitute. Oh. Um, so part of to be able to make it disappear from my record is to take this class. And it's a problem that I've had for quite some time, and it's good to be doing something about it as opposed to just um, keeping keep on keeping on. Do you remember the first time you solicited someone for sex? Uh, yeah. Can you tell me about that? I don't know. I think I was just clicking around and just like I just kind of happened upon it. How easy was that? Pretty easy. Yeah. Had you ever thought about buying sex before? Not really. It was kind of almost like it was available. It was like, oh, it's like shopping online for people to have sex with. Every day in this country, every hour, people are buying and selling sex. It's on the street. It's online, and it's worth a billion dollars. And the people who are buying, they're mostly men. Everybody I've met so far has been working to bring the sex trade out of the shadows. But the minute you try to talk to buyers, you hit a wall. They won't talk. There is a real stigma around sex work in the U.S. The stigma is there for people who sell it and people who buy it. And the people I'm here to meet in Seattle say that stigma is a good thing. To them, the whole way we deal with the sex trade needs to change. That's why the city is now only arresting sex buyers and not people who sell sex. So what happens when we stigmatize men for buying sex and arrest them? And how does that affect sex workers? I'm Noor Tagore, and this is Sold in America have to decrease the demand so that there's not an incentive to exploit people. These sex workers that are doing things illegally have all these excuses. It's bullshit. It, trust me, it's bullshit. My biggest concern is I'm homeless and I want a fucking place to stay and I want to be able to eat. But nobody listens to us when we say that. It's rarely very consensual, even when it's consensual. And it's something that's easy when you're the John or whatever not to think about. Because you're not thinking about them, you're thinking about yourself, obviously. It's called a trick for a reason. Because you're paying for the illusion of consent. These laws they make have a body count. They know that and they don't care. 
my heart is beating so fast, and I'm trying to figure out the next question I'm going to ask in this conversation with the buyer. He's leaning up against a windowsill and can barely look me in the eye. We're both clearly uncomfortable because we're talking about something most people don't typically talk about. He's telling me about the first time he bought sex from someone. During that time, did you feel like she was okay with it or she was consenting or this was okay? You know, it seemed like it. You know, I mean, it's an act, but, you know, it's uh, it's rarely very consensual, even when it's consensual. And it's something that's easy when you're the John or whatever not to think about. Because you're not thinking about them, you're thinking about yourself, obviously. There should be a stigma to it, and people should be aware that... um, even girls that aren't necessarily being trafficked have come into prostitution generally through a path of abuse. And that even if they're, um, there's a reason why they call it a trick. It's because they're a trick, it's a, it's a fantasy, you know, and it's just a, it's very selfish. This is a selfish act. So what were you expecting out of the class? Um, I don't know. I was a little fearful about just being shamed the whole time, but it's definitely more than that. You know, it's pretty well thought out. I think they do a pretty good job of, you know, initially just breaking down, you know, this is why it's wrong. These are the societal things that have happened that maybe sexualize women and make men treat them as objects, you know, and like, like it's kind of okay in our society to a certain extent and like how wrong that is. And then, you know, how to cope with that and move on. Has your perspective changed at all on women and in, in buying sex? Absolutely. You know, it's just, you know, it's destroyed a lot of things in my life that were good. And I had it pretty good before I started on that path, you know, and it's just a uh, uh, it was a downward spiral that I'm hoping that, you know, I've kind of bottomed out from it and you know, I, uh, I don't really have the desire to ever do that again. What did you feel after? Um, shame, regret, momentary elation, and shame and regret, you know. Can I ask about your just kind of, I guess, mentality towards women while you were buying sex? Like, did you have any, I don't know, specific thoughts about women, just in general? I was mad at my wife. It's, for me, it's kind of as simple as that. And I know it's like a horrible, like coping mechanism to see prostitutes because you're mad at my wife, your wife. But that's why, that's why I did it. Yeah. That's why I did it. It was, you know, and then it became a compulsive behavior for me. It's just something I did a lot. I was just used to it. And it was like an escape. Are you still with her? Yes. Your wife? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. And how did you guys go, like, deal with all of this? Uh, we're dealing with it right now, like couples counseling and this, and then a lot of talking. Who knows, you know, I, you know, it's hard to say how it's going to turn out. I, I'm hoping that we can stay together, but it's a lot to ask. It felt so weird to talk to a buyer. 
I mean, this was the first guy in all of my travels that I was able to finally have a conversation with about buying sex. And I was relieved and sad at the same time. He wasn't the boogeyman that I had built up in my head. In fact, he seemed pretty broken. But the biggest thing is, he seemed like anybody I would have gone to school with or gone to work with or come across in the street. He was just like anybody else. There were a couple of things that were very clear. Peter, his teacher, had gone through to him in just the few weeks they had been working together. You know, people think, well, you have 10 weeks with the man, and it's like, yeah, one of them said it best. He said, well, uh, it's 10 weeks, but I've had a lifetime to learn to be the way that I am. Like, and they go back, and they go back into those lives. And, you know, granted, 10 weeks is a lot better than, than one An day. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or uh, Chicago does a 15-minute video. And if they swipe their card, pay the fine, watch a 15-minute video, they're done. It's like less consequences than like fishing without a permit or stealing a sandwich from the corner store. It's just, uh, yeah. Peter, the guy who runs the class, he's also the co-founder of a nonprofit called Organization for Prostitution Survivors. He's a white guy in his 50s wearing a plaid shirt. He's really tall, about 6'2", and he's been working with men and boys for 25 years. His goal, as he describes it, is to end commercial sexual exploitation. It's all a part of his mission to change our culture as a society, like the whole way men think about power and sex. When I sit down with him in his office, he almost immediately gets into this really personal story. This uh, bachelor party that I went to when I was real super young, I was like 25 years old, and I got invited to a high school friend's bachelor party. And so I, I went to Maryland, where he was, he, he was and long, long story, really bad bachelor party. Um, but I had talked to the best man before I even got there and said, you know, because I'd already been working on this issue, and I was like, no prostitution, no strip clubs. If that's happening, I'm out. And he was like, no, 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 it's not going to happen. And then, so we were at the track, and then all of a sudden, somebody says, let's go to the strip club. And so, you know, there I am, like, 20-some-odd years old in my fight sexism t-shirt. I'm like, no, no, no. We said there was going to be no going to the strip clubs. And then the bride's father came up to me. He was drunk, and he came up to me, and he said, why are you being such a pussy? Bride's father. So anyway, like, split the party. Bride's father. Yeah. Yeah. When I hear that, I can feel my face scrunching up. My wedding is coming up in a few days, and I can't even wrap my mind around the idea of my dad saying anything remotely close to this. But we all know there are plenty of men who do talk like this. It's in our music. It's in our movies. It's in our television shows. It's in our advertisements. We're constantly surrounded by it. Yeah. So about half of the folks split and went there, and about half went back to the hotel. And so many of those men that went back to the hotel were like, thank you, Peter. I would have never, we, they would have never not gone. They would have like just gone along with it. That's what's like, different about talking to Peter. He's a man who looks at the sex trade as a power imbalance, where the men have all the power. When you ask him who causes the problems in the sex trade, he doesn't blame the people selling sex. He blames the people who are buying sex. 
it's not just about combating trafficking, that, it, that there's no trafficking without prostitution. There's no prostitution without demand and men's entitlement to the bodies of women and children and others. And so really fundamentally, I think learning to see the act of buying sex in and of itself as an act of exploitation. It's not just wrong because it causes trafficking. It's just wrong. It's non-consensual sex. Hang on a second. I started out on this journey because I know there's harm being done. But this idea that all sex work is sex trafficking, even if it's consensual, eh, I don't know. It seems like he's going a little too far. Like, how can that be true? Is there any ethical way possible for sex work to be carried out? So I think that we could have that conversation when we get rid of income inequality, when we get rid of sexism, when we get rid of homophobia and transphobia, when we get rid of of sexual objectification, when we get rid of toxic masculinity, when we get rid of these things, that, yeah, there may be space for that. I bet there would not be a lot of people buying at that point. And I bet there would be a lot of people who had great, healthy relationships, and there would be a lot of great sex happening in the world. It's called a trick for a reason. It's called a trick because you're paying for the illusion of consent. Peter's not the only one who thinks this way. His view of the sex trade is shared by people all over the country. Some people call them prohibitionists. They want to end the entire sex trade by getting rid of the demand for it. And they had a big influence on how Seattle deals with prostitution in court. Some of the men in Peter's classes are self-referred. But most of them are sent to this class by the court. And that's largely because of one man. Hey guys. Hi, Val. Val. Yeah, Noor, good to meet you. Yeah, good. Come on. Um, this is Val Ritchie. When I met him, he was one of the King County prosecuting attorneys. He now works for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. On the day we talked, he was still in Seattle, and we met each other here at the King County Courthouse. It's a giant stone building downtown. The hallways are all lined in gray marble, and wooden benches are scattered every few feet. Val is a super busy guy. Way overbooked this morning. A lot of journalists want to talk to him about this totally different approach. Do people give you crap about having mics when you're getting interviewed? Uh, They give me crap about um, having cameras following me around. Yes, they always do. Uh, (laughs) But that's okay. His office is tucked in a back corner. There's a single window looking out toward the office building next door. His old weathered wooden desk is piled with stacks and stacks of papers and folders. And so is the radiator behind him, which could probably be a hazard, but he doesn't really have much space in this office. Years ago, before Val learned about Peter's approach, he dealt with prostitution the same way the prosecutor's office always had. Prosecuting pimps. That's all we did. Cases would come in, police would bring in a pimping case, we would prosecute it. Prosecute traffickers, pimps, whatever you want to call them. And we just did case after case after case. And we were, you know, one of the, 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 at the forefront of the effort nationally. I mean, we were the first state in the country to have a trafficking statute. Uh, we were, we had a very progressive legislative uh, scheme. 
And Val was really proud of this work. He was helping victims in the sex trade, the women and children who were being exploited by the buyers. He thought he was doing the right thing. But in the course of doing that work, I would do presentations on trafficking issues. And when I'd go and present, people would come up to me and say, why do you guys keep arresting all these women and children, and why aren't you arresting the buyers? And I said, well, you know, people keep telling me that, but I don't know if that's really true. Actually, there was no real way he could know if police were arresting more women and children than buyers. He didn't have numbers on arrests across the county. Those were all being kept at individual police departments, and no one had taken the time to look at the big picture. So Val Ritchie assembled a team to do just that. I still remember very clearly when they came in that day with the data and they showed it to me. And it wasn't only true, it was hugely true. We were vastly disproportionately arresting women and children in prostitution versus buyers. What we found was that the minors who were victims in our cases, in our trafficking cases or cases involving buyers, the the minors were about half African-American, which is grossly disproportionate to our, our community. Um, and what we found about the buyers is that 80% of the buyers of minors were white. Um, and what that told us, first of all, is that it sort of confirmed everything that we had come to believe about this problem, which is that prostitution really takes advantage of and exploits those who are marginalized and it puts the responsibility for that exploitation in in the hands of those who are privileged. So I took that data to my bosses, my division head and the head of our elected prosecutor, and I said, this is what we found. I think we should try something different. And what I think we should do is try to figure out a way to get these women and children out of the criminal justice system and into services. And I think we need to figure out a way to go after the buyers. That's how Val and Peter connect. Val built on Peter's ideas. And he was also influenced by something called the Nordic model that started in Sweden. The idea is to arrest sex buyers, not sellers. So the buyers are the root cause of all of it, right? Because traffickers are, um, they can be sadistic, they can be violent, they can be all of those things. But first and foremost, they're business people. And if there's no money to be made, there's no business, right? So uh, in our view, if you look at it as an economic problem, you have to remove the source of the money. And that's the buyers. You have to decrease the demand so that there's not an incentive to exploit people. I have to admit, so far, This is all sounding pretty convincing to me. Men are exploiting women, and they just need to learn about the harm they're doing. But there's this missing piece of the puzzle. We're hearing a lot from the men in Seattle, but what about the women in Seattle who engage in sex work? Where are their voices? After the break, we talk to one of those women.
Maggie McNeil's front door looks kind of like stained glass, like a window at an old church. It really stands out. Uh, I do it that way so that I can, that's got that nice um, decoration on it, so I can describe that to people who come here instead of having to give them my address. And you don't give anyone your address? I do not. Cool. I do not. And that that prevents um, wrong door knocking. (laughs) Yeah, because that would (laughs) be a little bit awkward. That could be awkward. It could be. Maggie is a sex worker in Seattle. She does most of her work right out of her home. And her decorations are exotic, to say the least. I have this nice big round couch. A friend of mine calls it the cat bed because it looks like a it looks like a cat bed. It looks like a giant cat bed. And it's like um, a lot of red and blues and velvets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and and can you see the carpets? Yeah, the, floors are all the cheetah print Persian carpet. Rugs. Those are Persian rugs. Well, I mean, I don't know that they're really. One of them is one of the ones in my bedroom is an actual Persian. Oh rug. wow. Um, these, I think, are just American knockoffs. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to Maggie because she runs a blog that's pretty well known among sex workers, The Honest Courtesan. The blog is all about sex work. She has guest writers, she writes about news updates, and her own personal experiences, too. The very first time I took money for sex, I was 18. Uh, it was about three months after my 18th birthday. And it was a situation that just sort of arose. It was it was sort of accidental. I mean, the long story short version is uh, a much older man, a college professor, was sort of making a pass at me. And I was doing some work for him. And I asked him if I could stay on the clock. And he said yes. And that was the first time I took money for sex. What were you studying? Uh, I was, well, my first major was astrophysics, actually, but I flunked out of the math. So I would have too. <laughs> yeah, I switched to English. So like polar opposite subjects. Yeah, it was well, pretty much, but it was something that that came naturally to me. So it was a very pragmatic decision. Yeah, uh, I'm a very I'm a very pragmatic person, and and that's one of the things you'll find. Um, sex workers in general, even though we're we're all very different people, just as different as any other people you might meet. One thing we do have in common is we tend to all be very pragmatic. Because we simply don't see sex with the kind of horror that a lot of other people do. Well, what is a typical interaction with a John like for you? Oh, well, with a client. Um, Client. John is not really a term that we really use. Okay. Um, I'm not really sure where that actually – I know it's a street term. Um, I think it's from the East Coast originally. But nowadays, frankly, it's more often you hear something from cops and prohibitionists. Okay. You don't really hear it among sex workers. With a client, um, typical, okay, typically he would either uh, text me or send me an email. So once um, he and I have touched base by whatever means, in the best case scenario, he then provides me with his references. Uh, In other words, other girls he's seen. All right. Uh, their, their names and phone numbers or their email addresses, whatever way they like to be contacted. Wow. And then I check his references. You know, I find out, okay, did you see this guy? Here's his email address. Here's his phone number. Was he nice? Did he treat you well? Blah, blah, blah. And she'll come back and she'll say, oh, yeah, he was fine. I saw him three weeks ago, whatever. This all seems so businesslike to me. 
Maggie feels like she has all of the controls she needs to do this job safely. These men who are buying sex from her, they're just her clients. I wanted to ask, you know, when they implemented the Nordic model in Seattle, what was your what were your first thoughts? Okay, well, first of all, um, there's a lot of propaganda that's being thrown around um, about about things like that. Seattle does not have the Nordic model. Nowhere in the United States has the Nordic model. The only countries that have the Nordic model are Sweden, Norway, Iceland, France, and Canada. Uh, they're the only ones. Nobody else does. Um, in the United States, a lot of departments have adopted this kind of um, kind of evil twin of the Swedish model, which is not to say that the Swedish model itself isn't evil, because they're both evil, but so it's two evil twins. Um, but it's it's not quite the same, but very close. It's called the end-demand model. Right. And the it's this, it's based on the same philosophy as the Swedish model, which that philosophy being uh, basically women are moral imbeciles, and when money is is shown to us, we literally cannot resist whatever the person that's showing us that money wants to do because we're extremely stupid and spineless, and so therefore. Offering a woman money is basically the same as pointing a gun at her. And therefore, sex work is male violence against women because as soon as the man pulls the money out, it's as if he had put a gun to her head and she can't say no. And therefore, it's male violence. And therefore, we have to make uh, buying sex a crime, like pulling a gun on somebody would be a crime, but selling sex is not a crime. Uh, so that's the, the, the idea behind the Nordic model. However, the truth of the matter is, in the United States, of course, not a single place has revoked prostitution laws. Therefore, they can crow all they want about their end demand and, oh, we're concentrating on the Johns and all that bullshit. The fact of the matter is, it's still mostly women getting arrested. So when we went and visited Val Ritchie, he oh, yeah. yeah well he showed us statistics the arrest statistics and it showed that it was like a, a crazy number it went from like arresting hundreds of women to like i think like less than 20 or something like that i actually checked the city of seattle filed 259 prostitution charges in 2010 this was before the new policy was implemented according to their office in 2017 they only filed seven. Seattle is unusual in that way. Uh, Seattle has, among the end-demand cities, walked its talk the most. And that's still not saying a lot, but it has indeed done that. They're mostly arresting street women. And the fact of the matter is, you know, we, I care about anybody being arrested. I care if clients are arrested. I care if street women are arrested. I don't want people arrested for a consensual act, period. Maggie is very skeptical of Val Ritchie, the prosecutor we talked to. She says a lot of sex workers hate his approach. They also point to the fact that the King County Prosecutor's Office has gotten more than $191,000 in funding from a group called Demand Abolition. 
It's the same group that funds Peter Qualitin's work. Demand Abolition is a group that aims to end the sex trade altogether, which makes sense if you think all sex work is exploitation. There was actually a case brought against the prosecutor's office about this. One of the buyers felt he was unfairly treated because of this funding. A judge ruled that the money had no effect on the case. But it puts everything I heard from Val in a totally new light. They act as though they're, they're pure white light and they're making these wonderful laws to help people. No, these laws they make have a body count. They know that and they don't care. In the John's class, like, I know that they talk about like, toxic masculinity and dismantling patriarchy, um, and they're really focused on, like, changing the perception of women in a more empowering way. Um, but, and this is where, like, I constantly, like, have questions about, which is really what, and I don't know if this is going to sound terrible, but what should we be teaching men? Like, what do men need to know? Okay, let me use a metaphor here. If I gave you a set of directions um, like for, for a, a road journey, you know, basically head north, go a certain distance, get off on the next exit, turn right, blah, blah, blah. If I give you a set of directions to get you from the place you are to the place I want you to be, then you can follow those directions and you can get there. But what if I'm assuming that you are in Washington, D.C., when in actuality you're in Chicago and I give you the same directions? What's going to happen? You're going to get lost. You're going to go someplace that, that makes no sense at all. That's not where I wanted you to go. And it's if you take the assumption in the first place, Qualiatine's assumption and the end-demand people's assumption, that buying sex from women is an act of violence. That's their starting point. Their starting point is that the clients hate us. Well, that was one of the phrases I was going to run by, which was sex work is always exploitative. Right. It's always exploitative. It's always violent. It's bad that these guys are evil. These guys are trying to get something out of us. These guys are hurting us. They're raping us, blah, 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 blah. If you start from that point and then you follow his directions then those directions to him and to those people might seem to make sense. The problem is that's not the real starting point because that's not how clients feel about us. There are disrespectful clients and they generally don't get repeat. <laughs> Girl won't see them again. There's not a whole lot of research out there on sex buyers, but there were some studies that I could find that really did surprise me. There's a woman named Barb Brents. She's a researcher at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And she recently conducted a study that compared sex buyers' attitude towards women to the attitudes of men as a whole. They found that sex buyers actually had, in some cases, more egalitarian views on women than men in the U.S. as a whole. And that totally contradicts Val Ritchie and Peter Qualitine's whole approach. And when we reached out to the prosecutor's office, they said they weren't aware of these studies. 
Do you think most men feel entitled to women's bodies? I think that there's a certain group, there's a certain percentage of men who do. I don't think most men do, no. Um, certainly, and, and this is something you, you, you find out from sex workers quite often, which is really interesting. And it's been my experience, and it's all my friends' experience, in that when we've done traditional dating, you know, social dating, not paid dating, the guys actually treat you worse than the guys treat you when they're paying. Um, when, when guys are paying, I get flowers, I get candy, I get, they're very polite, they're very nice, they're, oh, I'm sorry, did, is it okay for me to do this particular thing? They ask you for consent? Yep, they sure do, and sometimes repeatedly, sometimes to the point where I actually will stop them and say, honey, just go ahead and, and you know, proceed naturally, and if you do something I don't like, I will stop you because I kind of get tired after a while of like being asked every, you know, two minutes. Visiting Seattle made it really clear to me. There is a huge debate going on over whether people can actually consent to sex work. There are two huge camps in that debate. Peter Qualitine and Val Ritchie are in one camp. That camp wants to get rid of the sex trade altogether because they believe no one can consent to sex if money is involved. If you believe that, then going after the sex buyers, like Val does, makes a lot of sense. Getting rid of the demand is a good way to end sex work altogether. And framing all sex work as sex trafficking is a strategy. Demand Abolition posted their 2010 action plan online, and in it, they say they want to frame the issue as ending sexual slavery, not ending prostitution, because those specific words would get them more support. But Maggie is proudly in the other camp. Her message is, stop patronizing me. I know when I'm being exploited, and this is not exploitation. I'm doing sex work because I want to, and people like Val Ritchie and Peter Qualitine are taking away my right to choose how I earn money. I've heard the same thing from other sex workers, and their perspective, it makes sense to me. But even though Maggie makes her living doing sex work in Seattle, it's technically still a crime. But that made me wonder, what does sex work look like when it's legal? As soon as I found out I was going to be doing this, I kind of started going through goals in my head, like, what am I going to do with this money? You know, I need to start a retirement fund. I need certain things. You know, I want a new car, of course, you know, all the material stuff. But then, of course, like, I need to be set for my future. So I'm like, I'm going to set up my future right now at the Bunny Ranch. What exactly happens when we legalize sex work? We travel to the only place in the country where selling sex is treated like any other business— Next time on Sold in America. Hey, I really would love to know what you thought about this episode. Did you have any questions or comments? Did you remember one of your own personal memories or stories? And do you want to share those with me? I'd love to hear them. 
If so, record a voice memo on your phone of you asking that question or even telling me your story, and then text it to me at 202-804-2480. We'll gather up all of your voice memos and then use them in a bonus episode at the end of the season. Can't wait to hear from you. Sold in America is reported and produced by me, Noor Tagori, with Eric Krupke, Kate Grumke, and Kevin Clancy. The show is edited by Suzanne Reber and Ellen Weiss. Our executive editor is Peter Clowney. Sound design and original theme music by David Herman. Special thanks to Mark Fahey, Karen Rodriguez, Aisha Bagshi, and Rick Kwan. We also want to thank Andrew Haig for our collaboration with Ground Source. Sold in America is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producers are Jenny Radelet and Chris Bannon. I'm Noor Tagori. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Noor and Twitter at NTagori. And I'd also love it if you checked out our video documentary. You can find it by Googling Newsy Sold in America. If you like this show, and I really hope you do, don't forget to rate it and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. And of course, thank you so much for listening. Stitcher. You can think of household name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret. Or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was lie. No. (laughs) I still regret that. Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? That before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis. Hitler built a city for the Beetle? <laughs> like the hippie Beetle? <laughs> you can talk about how LaCroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool. And wow your friends with stories of TGI Friday's wild early days as one of the first singles bars. I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, hi, darling, I own this place. I've seemed to work. I'm Dan Bobkoff, and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Household Name, brands you know, stories you don't. Listener.